Luke chapter number 16. We are looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning. This first half of Luke 16, not as familiar as the the latter half. You're probably very familiar with Luke 16 because of Lazarus and the rich man. But in these first 18 verses, we learn a valuable principle. We learn some valuable principles for Christian living and faithful service in Christ's kingdom. So I want us this morning to begin by looking at the parable of the unjust steward. Then we'll get into some verses that teach us this is what Jesus taught after he shared that parable. And then we'll end in the last few verses with this was the Pharisees or the religious folks of that day. This was their reaction to what Jesus taught. So I think it's a very telling passage and very helpful for us. Let's read first just the first eight verses. He said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward. The same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and he said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship I cannot dig to beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said unto him, Take thy bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. He said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Let's pray. Father, you have created this time that we might join together in it around your word. You've made us a part of your church. You've given us your word. So we are very blessed people. We ask for your blessing on this time as we consider what you have for us here in this passage. May we grow thereby. May we be all the more submissive to the Holy Spirit as he indwells us and leads us into all truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first heading that we encounter this morning is this parable of the rich man and his steward, or as we have often called it, the unjust steward. I want to give you three topics from this particular heading. The steward's crisis, the steward's craftiness, and then the steward's commendation. We'll see these three things, beginning with the crisis in verses 1 through 3. We read that a rich man is informed that his steward, his manager, his overseer, the one he's entrusted with his business matters, is wasting his goods. So he calls for an accounting. And then he communicates that he intends to dismiss this steward. The steward, recognizing the crisis that he's in, makes a very revealing statement. He says in verse number three, what shall I do? And I I tell you, I don't know that we find this guy's an unjust steward. And I don't want to build him up to you too much this morning. But in this instance, you've at least got to hand it to him. He's honest. He says, what can I do? I'm too weak to dig and I'm too proud to beg. Any, any people right along with this guy this morning? <laughs> this kindred spirits here. I'm too proud to beg. Well, typically I'm not actually. If I'm hungry, I'll ask you for some food. I'm for sure too weak to dig. 
I appreciate a man, in spite of his flaws, who knows his own limitations. So this is his crisis. I've done wrong. My master has caught me in doing this wrong. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to be kicked out of this house. I'm going to have nowhere to go. And what am I going to do? Because I'm too weak to dig and I'm too proud to beg. This leads us to the craftiness. In verse 4, 5, 6, and 7, in order to win friends and have a place to go when his employer fires him, this unjust steward devises a scheme to discount the debts of his master's account holders. John Piper summarizes this parable very well. Let me read you what he says. A manager is fired, but before he leaves, he negotiates with the debtors of the owner to sign new contracts so that they owe the owner less than they really do. The manager hopes that these debtors will feel obliged to him so that when he's jobless, they'll help him out. So the deceitful manager uses his wits to figure out a way to manipulate money so as to secure his future. This is what he does. This is his craftiness. Now, as you read this and you think through what is going on here, you think his master's going to come in a second time and say, you wicked steward. You know, up to this point, Jesus has been pointing out sort of this father who would be like God and then his sons who would be kind of us. Anytime there was a person that was in the place of the master or the father or the owner, it was, it was sort of pointing us to God. Verse 8 now makes a twist here. And it's not pointing us to God. It's just another unjust human being. And you're waiting on the master to come in and say, I asked you for an accounting and not only did you steal from me, but now you're stealing from me further because you're discounting the debts of these people who owe me. That's not what he says at all. It actually is a little bit flooring. As you read in verse 8, the Lord commended the unjust steward. Sadly, theologians throughout church history have twisted and turned this passage to try to figure out some ethical way that the master could still be God in the parable. And then there's some instances where we must do things that are a little bit gray area and are not completely right. That's not the interpretation here. In fact, we, this one, we don't have to worry so much about the interpretation because Jesus goes on and gives it to us in the next section. But just be clear, there's an unjust steward. He does some unjust things and he has an unjust master who then commends him for doing his unjust things. Now, this owner is unique himself. You got to hand it. He's a smart guy because he's hired a smart guy. The, the unjust steward who's been kind of skimming and stealing from his master He's honest, too old, to, too weak to dig, and I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do? He uses his wits. He figures out something to do. The owner then, left in a unique spot, realizes he's been outwitted in business. He's a shrewd man himself, so he recognizes the wit. He recognizes the clever trickery of the unjust steward. He commends him for it. Now notice in these verses how well the steward maneuvers. There again, I don't want to give him too much credit because he's a bad dude. But it doesn't mean he's a dummy. The first thing I would point out in these verses is that he, he made his master look good in the eyes of his debtors. Verse 5, he said to every one of his Lord's debtors, How much owest thou, my Lord? He sets up a situation here by discounting their debt that he's not going to lose future business with them. Now understand the culture of the time. Jews could not charge interest. They could 
You could owe them money, but you could only owe them the principal. So if this man was a landowner and maybe you, uh, you farmed off a portion of his crop, he provided the seeds for you. You owed him the money for the seeds, plus he was going to take a portion of the, the harvest. You know, whatever the arrangement was there in business, whatever you did, you couldn't charge him interest. So maybe you weren't going to pay for the seeds until the, the harvest came in. And that was going to be six to nine months from now. Well, he couldn't charge you 10% on that. Well, to be shrewd, to make that interest that he couldn't charge you, if the seeds cost 400 shekels, dollars, he would actually charge you 800, overcharge you for the seeds instead of charging you interest on the seeds you'd borrowed for the nine months. Okay? Not charging interest. Got it? <laughs> Shrewd businessman. Well, what did, his, what did his servant do here? He didn't actually steal further from the, the owner's principal. Now, he did discount the debt. So they actually only owed the principal. He kind of took away from future profits that he was going to make. But he, he, he really outwitted his own boss here. And in doing this, he's, he's going to get fired. He's going to get dismissed. But even in leaving, he doesn't make his master look bad. Makes him look good. He, he secures probably future contract with these same businessmen going forward, even though he won't be in the mix. The second thing he does is he makes a long-term move, even though he's in an immediate crisis. I'm about to get dismissed. I need a job now. I need to buy food now. I'm going to need a place to live now. But he makes this long-term move instead. Why? Verse 4, I am resolved what to do, that when I put out, I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. He assured that people would be sort of honor bound to help him out later should he need it. Now, wanted to dig into this story a little bit to help us fully understand Jesus' teaching. Because Jesus is going to go on here and say, most unbelievers, in this sense, operate more cleverly, more strategically, more efficiently than believers do. And Jesus' point is going to be, they're operating with temporal things. We're operating with eternal things. Should we not operate the most strategically because it's that much more important? MacArthur says on this, most unbelievers are wiser in the ways of the world than some believers are toward the things of God. Sproul says, Jesus uses the parable to illustrate that worldly people often use what they have to further worldly ends more strategically than people of the light do to further the quite different aims of God's kingdom. Amen. Amen. This is, should be convicting to us. Something that's sitting heavy on my chest right now because we're, we're using about 5,000 square feet and we're losing about 5,000 square feet and the question is running around our heads, what are we going to do for square footage? Something that's bugging me right now. My doctor brought this up to me, of all people. I was at a doctor's appointment this week. I'm healthy. I know you were concerned for me. My doctor says to me, well, don't you all only use the square footage like an hour a week anyways? And I said, well, three. Said, That's a lot of money spent on something you only use. Like if we were to do that in business, we'd go bankrupt. I was like, oh, man. That's one example of how we're not being strategic in how we do kingdom work. How we're not being clever. How we're not being witty. 
So Jesus' instruction comes to us in verses 9 through 13, and he lays out clearly how the church should actually operate up against this very worldly parable. Verse 9, he teaches us to use temporal wealth to make earthly friends. I'm going to dig more into that one. Just in the wording of it, it sounds kind of crummy, doesn't it? It sort of sounds manipulative. That's not what Jesus is teaching. So we'll get into that one some more. As we move on then, verse 10, 11, and 12, he'll teach us that we should be faithful with what we have so that we can be trusted with something better. And then in verse 13 is that age-old principle of you can't serve two masters. God does not compete for our loyalties. So let's begin in verse 9. Jesus' instruction based off this parable that we should use temporal wealth to make eternal friends. Notice what he says. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. So up against the parable that he just taught, Jesus now says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwelling. In the most basic form, the principle Jesus is teaching here is be generous. Christians should be the most generous people on the face of the earth. What he's teaching, though, is that his disciples aren't to be satisfied or to be selfish with the wealth that they have, but rather they should be earning it and getting more of it so that they can use it to make friends, to be able to help others. Just as the steward had done in an unjust way in verse number four. Remember what he did. He said, I'm resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, when I get fired, I'll need somewhere to land. I'm going to do these guys a favor so that they receive me into their houses. Now, he's being manipulative and he's being selfish. But he's being strategic toward a particular end. Jesus uses that and says, this is how we should operate. And we're not being manipulative because we're not offering them something that will benefit us. We're offering them something that will benefit them for all time and eternity. Now, when we think about mammon, it's a funny word in the scriptures. When we think about mammon, we typically think about what, what modern English word? Money. And then we think about money and people will say, well, Money is the root of all evil. We know that the love of money is the root of all evil. We, we want to understand mammon is not just money, but it's money, it's things. It could be time, it could be talents. It could be anything that you're making an idol out of. A God outside of the one true God that could actually be mammon is different for a lot of folks. In fact, when preachers preach these passages, everybody in the church who doesn't think they have a lot of money, they sit there and they don't sweat and they relax. They say, oh, he's not getting on me this morning. I'm good because I'm broken poor. Well, remember by the world's standard, we're all very rich. Every single one of you in here this morning, by the worldwide standard, you live like a king. You live in a palace. You dress with royal apparel. You drive a chariot that is fueled by gasoline, which is very expensive. Oil is not cheap. You have air conditioning. You have a, a cooler in your house that keeps your food from going bad. Your kids have more toys than the poor little girls on the prairie back on Little House ever got at Christmas. We're very wealthy in reality. But as we think about this, I want us to take some facts into hand here. Is money evil? 
Money is value neutral. You understand what that means? It's a, it's a thing. It's a currency. It's a tool. It'd be like saying hammers are evil. Are hammers evil? But I know this guy, he took his hammer to his neighbor's head. That's evil. So we should get rid of all the hammers. I'm going to stop there on the Second Amendment. I know you know where I'm going there, but try not to be political. Money is value neutral. Most of the things in life fall right into the same thing. There, there are some things that are just wicked. And there are some things that are just evil. But typically with things and money, it just comes down to how you use them. Do you use them for wickedness or do you use them for good? The other thing I want you to think as we go through this is not only that money is a tool that it's value neutral. Is that all of this world's resources are temporary. Anybody in here, you, you still got a hoard of some Confederate money? Anybody still have some? I don't have any, but for a while that would have been worth something. I've got some old, we, we took a trip to Mexico for emissions when we were teenagers. I've got some pesos somewhere in a box there. I guess if I took them to Mexico, they'd still be worth something. But over here, they're worthless. I used to have a Canadian quarter. I don't know if they called it a quarter, but it was the same size as the quarter and had the queen on it. And we used to try to put them in the video games of Walmart and play. They wouldn't take those. They'd only take George Washington. It's just, these are just things. They're temporal. They're not eternal. So what is Jesus teaching us here? It matters how we use mammon and it matters when we use mammon. William MacDonald in his Believer's Bible Commentary writes, use money and other material things in such a way as to win souls for Christ and thus form friendships that will endure throughout eternity. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Hold your place. Flip back with me to Luke chapter 12. Because as we think of this first principle, use temporal wealth to make eternal friends, it can be hard sometimes to know exactly what that means or exactly how we should operate there. But in Luke, we've already had Jesus teach us exactly what this means. Luke chapter 12, verse 30. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that you have and give alms, Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupted. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You go back to Luke 16. What am I to do in this regard? To be generous. I'm not to be stingy. I'm not to be selfish. Why? Because my level of generosity, my level of living for other people, their eternal souls are in the balance here. There's an eternal thing that's way more important than the temporal thing that I'm clinging to or trying to build. Now, this is not Jesus saying, don't build. He's saying, build. Build mightily. Build great. Be just as clever and witty and strategic in your business as these guys were in their business, but not for the same reason. Not to get a statue under yourself someday, but so that you'll have great influence over the lost of this world, that they might too become part of the kingdom. This is an entirely different level of shrewdness. Temporal wealth. Last, 
a measurable amount of time, but eternal wealth is that. It's, it's eternal. The characters in this parable, they're going to have their wealth at a lifetime at best. Jesus is teaching us here how to be wealthy for an eternity. Now, he's not condoning the unjust steward. In fact, we know that from verse 8, as he calls him that, the unjust steward. The Lord commended the unjust steward. But Jesus is putting this man's efforts for the temporal up against his disciples' efforts for the eternal. Paul says, in a race, everyone runs. But he says, we should run hoping to do what? Win. He says, run to win. He says, if you're going to shoot, you aim for the bullseye. We're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We're victorious because of the cross and the resurrection. We don't operate like that typically, though, as the church. We just kind of wander through life. We, we let our spirituality be something we get around to on the weekends, maybe. But are we strategic about our relationships? Are we strategic about our spending? Are we strategic about our planning? Are we clever and witty? We're the stewards of God's kingdom. We should be very strategic about this work. We should be even smarter and even more aggressive than the world is about their work. You know the old sayings, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Yeah. I remember as a kid, maybe it was a commercial or maybe a college came to our school. I don't remember what it was, but it was, they were teaching us about the woes of credit card debt. They said, you better budget your money because we promise you the credit card company's figuring out how to spend it for you, or, you know, whatever that, however that goes. The world is very strategic. Pagans are very aggressive. Christians should be all the more. Augustine, we we're fortunate to have his wording as he preached on this text. I want to read you a portion of it. He preached, Why did the Lord Jesus Christ present this parable to us? He surely did not approve of that cheat of a servant who cheated his master, stole from him, and did not make it up from his own pocket. Why did the Lord set this before us? It is not because that servant cheated, but because he exercised foresight for the future. He was ensuring himself for a life that was going to end. Would you not ensure yourself for eternal life? Good sermon. Jesus says here, when you fail, verse 9, says, I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail... They may receive you into everlasting habitations. It's a two-part meaning there. When you fail or when it fails, the unrighteous mammon, meaning when, when you fail, it will fail. When you die, you can't take it with you, right? When you fail, who will receive you into eternity? This is the point of what he is saying there. They may receive you into everlasting habitations. Surely we must live in such a way that the Godhead will receive us into eternity. But Jesus is instructing further. Live in such a way that those you've helped will be there to receive you. 
build up eternal treasure in those you've helped in this life, they'll be the ones to show you to it in the next. Now, I notice throughout church history, there have been these differing opinions and differing views on the church's relationship to mammon. Some treat mammon as evil to be avoided. And so they make vows to live lives unto poverty. Some treat mammon as a necessary evil. So we're going to use it, but we're going to wash it first. And we're only going to use it for godly purposes. My pastor used to always say when someone maybe had uh, questionable means for their income, but wanted to make a large donation to the church. And people say, what do you do? You're going to receive that money? He would always laugh and say, the devil's had that money long enough. It's time for the Lord to put it to use. (laughs) We have a friend in the North Georgia mountains of a man in his church won the lottery and he wanted to give $75,000 to the church because they had this big Bible camp and they needed a new swimming pool and it was going to cost $75,000 dig the old pool up, put the new pool in for kids to swim in during the summer when they came to Bible camp. They told the preacher, if you receive the money, we'll fire you because it come from the lottery. And uh, the, guy, the guy said, well, if you don't receive the money, I'm going to quit the church. So here's this poor mountain preacher and you know, what do you do there? Receive the money, put the pool in, quit the church and go somewhere else. That's what you do there. What are we doing here? Is mammon an evil to be avoided? Is mammon a necessary evil? Some treat it as temporal. And it's only evil if you do evil with it. But I think Jesus gives us some clarity here. And I'm glad he does. And in these next verses, he begins by saying, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness that when you fail, they may receive into everlasting habitations. Now he goes on in verses 10 through 12 to teach us to be faithful with what we have so that we can be trusted with something better. Notice verse 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own. So it seems clear that those who perform well, according to verses 8 and 9, what is taught there, will later be entrusted with more and will be entrusted with better. This is Jesus' teaching. Phil Riken says, Nowhere is faithfulness more important than in the use we make of our material possessions because what we do with our money always reveals what is really in our hearts. We read that back in Luke chapter number 12. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I don't think any theologian comments on these verses any better than Martin Luther. Luther says, We must use all these things upon earth in no other way than as a guest who travels through the land and comes to a hotel where he must lodge overnight. He takes only food and lodging from the host, and he says not that the property of the host belongs to him. Just so should we also treat our temporal possessions as if they were not ours, and enjoy only so much of them as we need to nourish the body and then help our neighbors with the balance. Good words from Luther. Think of the things that God has allowed you to steward over. He's made you his overseer. He's made you his manager of these things. For some of you, it is wealth directly. For others of you, it's positions of power. You, you have influence. You, you, you have the say-so. Maybe God's given you a talent. 
He's allowed you to bless other people with this talent that you have, and you're the steward of that talent here on the earth. And for sure, we've all been given time to steward. He said, redeem the time because the days are evil. We're to be stewards of our time. Well, it's not evil or wrong to have these things that God has entrusted us with. In fact, it's right to have these things. If you're saved and you're doing the will of God for your life and He entrusts you with time for a certain thing or a a talent or a position of power or great wealth, it's perfectly right for you to have these things. You should praise Him for allowing you this stewardship of this thing in life. And you should do well with it. These are blessings from the Lord. So verse 10, Jesus teaches, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Do you want more? Oh, you have this talent. Do, do you want to be more talented? Do you want to be, have a greater influence through using this talent? Well, be faithful with a little bit of talent that you have now so that you can be entrusted with more. Verse 11. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches? Can we really expect him to reward us eternally if we cannot even be faithful with the temporal or here in the temporal? You want more? Be faithful with what little you have now. You want to be entrusted with the eternal? Be faithful with the temporal. Verse 12 then. If you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? It all belongs to him. But if we're faithful over that which is his, he's going to entrust us with our own. Now let's bring this into the practical. And certainly there's a million illustrations to this. We could go to every single home represented here this morning and say, well, this is how we apply this in your home. This is how you apply this in your home. But I do want to illustrate it for you now that we've interpreted it. Are you using your wealth or your possessions faithfully? Or are you using them selfishly? Are you using your your time faithfully or using your time selfishly? Are you using your talent or your position faithfully or are you using it selfishly? If God has blessed you with a nice home, for example, well, you should always be using that home to bless other people through hospitality. And if you are not, well, then you're being selfish with a nice home that God has allowed you to steward. If God has blessed you with wealth, you should always be giving generously. And if you're not giving generously, then you're hoarding it selfishly. So you're not being faithful with the temporal God has given you. So what should you expect eternally? If God has blessed you with freedom of time, I'll just leave that. Always be flexible and always be available. God has blessed you with a position of power or influence. Always be using this for the good of others and not for yourself only. Now that brings us to the final principle and a word of warning that we find in verse 13, which is serve God and nothing else. No servant can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's easy in all of this type of living to actually begin to serve yourself or even the things that you've been allowed to steward, your wealth or your possessions or your time or your talent, even meaning to be serving them for the good of God. That's what the Pharisees are doing here that Jesus is addressing. They're the stewards of the old covenant. But they've stopped serving the God of the old covenant and they've started just serving the old covenant, even as it divides them from God. This is Jesus's point in our living. You cannot serve God in anything else. If you try to have two masters, you're naturally going to be unfaithful to one of those. So is money controlling you or is God controlling you? Is schedule controlling you or is God controlling your schedule? First Timothy chapter six, Paul writes here to the, the pastor Timothy and gives good words to give to the churches. First Timothy six, 17, 18 and 19. He says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Every one of us sitting here this morning is rich. Some of us are more rich than others with money. Some of us are more rich than others with time or talents or positions of power, but we're all rich. Paul's word here is charge those who are rich. Don't be high-minded. Don't trust in these uncertain temporal things. Trust in the eternal living God. He's the one who gave you these things anyways. And he says to enjoy. He did give you these things to enjoy. And what are we to do with the things that we've been given to steward? Do good. Be rich in good works. Would your, would your balance sheet this morning say that you're rich in good works? That's convicting he says, be ready, ready to distribute. Be just on the edge, on the verge of pulling the trigger to, to distribute. You say, well, I've, I've got this talent. I don't know what to do with this talent. Well, I'll tell you what not to do with it. Don't go bury it in the earth, afraid that you'll lose it. That's not biblical. Be on the tiptoes of expectation of how can I distribute this talent that God has blessed me with to all of the world. Be rich in good works. Be ready to distribute. Be willing to communicate. Lucky you should preach this point. Go ahead and tell us about it. What should we be doing every day, everywhere we go? Lifting up the name of Jesus Christ, spreading the gospel to the world. Each in his own way as God gives him. Yep. But we should quit making excuses being undercover Christians ever were about the assembly. Amen. That's how the man lives his life. <laughs> Embarrasses me every restaurant we go in. Nah, I'm just kidding, lucky either. <laughs> we should be willing to communicate. And then Paul tells Timothy why. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. Isn't that what you want? Well, that's what I want. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm very happy that I deserve God's wrath. That Christ took God's wrath and now I have Christ's righteousness even though I didn't earn it. 
Well, praise the Lord for grace. But now that I sit here in grace and I read the Lord's book, I come to understand that there's more to life than just that. That's just kind of like the admission price. That's just the first step. And then there's this whole thing after that. And this is the whole thing. We're to be laying up eternal foundations, treasures in heaven. Well, what is the Pharisees' reaction to this? Verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. So they, they begin to ridicule Jesus' teaching here. Is it because he's wrong? It's not because he's wrong. It's because they love money. It says they were covetous. They love things. They love money. They love the things that money provided them. So they couldn't take Jesus' teaching this way. So in their religious authority, they had to say, we're better rabbis than him. And we know God longer than he has. And we keep the old covenant. And, you know, they pick corn on the Sabbath and heal people on the Sabbath. They can't be right. So they begin to ridicule Jesus. Jesus takes hold of this opportunity and he addresses them directly on this topic. Notice verse 15. He said unto them, You are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Jesus says to them, You've figured out how to be justified in man's sight, but God knows the evil in your hearts. These Pharisees were using their power and their wealth and the authority they had according to their religion to justify a sinful lifestyle or to hide a sinful lifestyle. All the while, still wearing the, vest, the vesture, the garment there, seeming religious publicly. Verse 16 then, Jesus tells them, the kingdom has come, people are entering it, you should be the ones leading the way, ushering people into the kingdom. But you're outside and you're resisting. He says the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man press, presseth into it. Church, we've got to hear this. The church's role is to lead sinners to Christ. And he will bless us to this end mightily. That's what verse 9 through 13 tells us. When we're fulfilling Kingdom building ministry, gospel ministry. God will see to it that we have what we need to be able to fulfill this ministry. But when we're just keeping it for ourselves, when we're hoarding it up, when we're not being strategic, when we're not being clever, when we're not planning long term, when we're just being consumers of his blessings. My pastor always taught us you need to be a channel. You can't be a dam. As long as you're trying to dam up God's blessings, He will cut off the blessings. But as long as you're a channel for those blessings, He will keep sending the blessings. So as the blessings come from heaven to you, they're not for you. They're for you and somebody else. You, you pass it along. The blessings keep coming and you keep passing along. The blessings keep coming and you pass it along. The moment you begin to stop and say, well, I want this or I need this. You can expect the blessings to stop. We used to sing the old Lester Roloff song to the children. The windows of heaven are open. The blessings are falling tonight. There's joy, joy, joy in my heart since Jesus made everything right. <laughs> I gave him my old tattered garments. He gave me a robe of pure white. 
I'm feasting on manna from heaven. And that's why I'm happy tonight. And then we'd sing it again because it was kids and we were trying to entertain them till their parents got back. I like this method better. Just let you entertain your own parents while I teach you the word. I'm sorry. Boy, that was a slip, wasn't it? <laughs> we'll let you entertain your own children. We would sing it again and say, I'm feasting on Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> and on and on and on it would go. God will bless us to the end of kingdom work. We sang that right before this. To your church is built and the earth is filled for, with your glory. God will bless us to that end. It, it may not even be substantive stuff at times. It, it, sometimes it just might be the grace we need. You heard missionary Gracia Burnham speak to us, tell her testimony a few weeks ago. She didn't testify to us that God always gave the physical thing that they thought they wanted or needed in that time. Sometimes he seemed to cap that from them, even though they were kidnapped by terrorists, to give them the gracious spiritual thing they needed internally to be the gospel witness even to terrorists that they needed to be. Oh, mind-boggling. Then in verse 17 and 18, Jesus gives them a proof text. If you read through this chapter, you, you pick up in verse 19 with Lazarus and the rich man. Rich man died in hell, he lifted up his eyes. Lazarus also died, he's carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. You go from that to this unjust steward, and right here in the minute, middle, you got this verse on divorce, verse 18. It kind of seems out of place. It's like, well, what in the world? And then there's just the one verse. Well, this is just Jesus using a proof text, same as I would to you sometimes. I'm preaching on something else. Say, another verse that makes the same point is this verse. I don't preach you the whole context of the passage that verse is in. I just proof text with that one particular verse to make the point I'm making in another passage. And that's what Jesus does here. So verse 17, he, he makes the statement, God's word is sufficient. It will forever stand. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Now that should be securing to you this morning as Bible believers. The word of God is sufficient. What will happen before one mark in all of Scripture, one period, one, one cross over a T, one dot over an I? What will happen before one iota of the Word of God is not sufficient? Heaven and earth will pass away. You feel pretty good in the Word? I think we're safe. Now up against that, he gives them some Word. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. Whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Now, who did Jesus say this to? These Pharisees who are reacting poorly to what he said because they were covetous. Verse 14, they love money. They heard these things and they began to ridicule him for this teaching about eternal wealth. So he points out another error in their doctrine, which was that they often would conveniently misinterpret or change the scriptures. R.C. Sproul says, this is not Jesus's fullest teaching on marriage and divorce. His intention here is to remind the Pharisees of the importance of the law. These men who claim to be pillars of the Old Testament law were violating that law every day and nowhere more noticeably 
than in their utter disregard for Old Testament legislation about marriage. They were quick to grant divorces. Why? Because that's what the people wanted. These men were more concerned to receive the applause of the people than to receive the blessing of God. Jesus isn't teaching about marriage and divorce here. He's teaching these Pharisees, you're supposed to be religious authorities, but you don't even hold to the letter of the law of your own religion. Why not? Because the rich donors that fund your covetousness wouldn't go for it. What do you get when that's how you operate? You give a temporal amount of supply for your covetousness and you get a whole lot of eternal debt. But when you operate according to the truths of the scripture, you might lack temporarily, but you will feast eternally. So in this account of stewardship, Jesus sort of gives us the sandwich of instruction. On each end, we have those who are not faithfully stewarding. You have the Pharisees on one end. You have this unjust steward and his master on the other. And in between, he gives this rich and blessed teaching to the church on what biblical stewardship should look like. Let's remember here. Serve God and no one else. Nothing else. Be faithful with what you have so you can be trusted with something better. And use your eternal wealth or your temporal wealth to make eternal friends. Let's stand and pray.